Welcome to Black Box by the Algorithmic Governance Research Network with me, Teresa Estbeer-Kuldeva. Joining me today is Marijle Kaufmann, professor at the Department of Criminology and Sociology at the University of Oslo, to discuss her work over the past few years on surveillance, predictive policing, hackers and secrecy, among others. Welcome to the show, Marijle. Hi, Teresa. <laughs> so this is the first episode we are actually recording in person. So this will be exciting and maybe a bit different. And I have selected three texts of yours to discuss today. The first one is on hacking surveillance and your work with hackers. The second one on the way in which surveillance and secrecy are often intertwined and how it displays out in the lives of children. And the third on predictive policing and the making of an agency of police algorithms. But before we discuss all these intriguing subjects, maybe you can say a few words about yourself and your academic background. Yeah, right. Thanks. Thanks for having me and thanks for your interest. That means a lot to me. Well, uh, what's my background? Well, I'm originally a studied cultural scientist. Uh, so I started out with a bachelor in uh, in Frankfurt, uh, Oda, and then I decided that I actually am quite interested in criminology. I wrote my my bachelor thesis, I remember, on um, on yeah, the city and and uh, of course came came across the Chicago school and all these these different forms of social organization and disorganization. So I was like, let's go further and look a little bit into criminology. Was happy that I was accepted in Hamburg um, and then yeah, continued having my my uh, PhD there and uh, Finally, I had a postdoc here in Oslo at the Department of Criminology and Sociology of Law. But before that, I actually, while I was writing my PhD, I was also associated with the Peace Research Institute Oslo. So I have a little bit of a background in both, like, well, I guess critical security studies. So I have all the, you know, there's all the people from the IR and political science. And now I'm deep, deep in the, the criminology and the STS crowd. Hmm. Great, that's a really nice trajectory. So let's turn to your work and your article, uh, which is titled Hacking Surveillance, which was published in First Monday in 2020. You turned to ha the hackers there and explored the ways in which they relate to, disrupt, evade, and in other ways dispute online surveillance. So what, did, what motivated you to explore this subject? Yeah, actually, it motivated me that I understood, okay, so much has been said and written about surveillance. And I was getting a little bit bored by the discussions on governance and power and, you know, the classics, um, you know, it's surveillance is everywhere. And then I thought, well, but there's also so many who do something with surveillance. And then originally I had this idea like, yeah, let's look at countervalence or something that, you know, kind of questions valence. And then while doing the work, I realized, well, actually, this is not about countering anything. It's always intertwined. It's always, that's what I mean also when I say dispute. So the whole point is that you never really just say, okay, I'm, I'm offline, I'm gone, or I'm kind of making that, that revolution. But it's rather um, about putting a question mark, having a dialogue. <laughs> the dialogue may take many forms, some of them a bit radical. Um, so, so this is like this back and forth. So putting a question mark basically on whether surveillance is really as powerful as it, as many claim it to be, but also at the same time, you know, you understand at some point when you do speak to hackers, when you do speak to kids, when you do speak, uh, yeah, to, to all those different. I also spoke to artists at some point, like how do you kind of question surveillance? 
they also veil themselves as well. It's all a big mm. interplay. So, so this excited me and I thought like, well, who are the, those who actually manage to do it on a technical skill when it comes to internet surveillance? Cause data is so inherently traceable and it's so kind of, you know, it's, it's so material in a way that I kind of, you know, the, the materiality of information is really also what kind of makes its politics. I'm sure we're going to speak about this later, but, uh, so the whole point is, okay, so how can, how can we remake data? How can we reapproach data, uh, to make it matter differently, you know, not in the context of, of male main, <laughs> main top-down surveillance so so yeah this is how i came to think of hackers also pretty male uh, environment actually yeah, right. yeah yeah so speaking of hackers they are often an ambivalent figure right mm. they are associated with illegality others deem them even complicit in neoliberalism they are, can be seen as both corrupting and as protecting as a counterculture as a force of resistance as rogue as criminals as traitors while some emphasize ethical hacking as a way forward and so on. Maybe you could say more about these diverse perceptions and how did it match the reality when you met mm. with those hackers that you met with? Yeah, I mean, what I kind of found out relatively soon is that all these hats, you know, made a gray where, you know, you start out being ethical, but then turn potentially dark or <laughs> black or, or green, uh, which is the newbies I heard or, um, like blue, which do it for companies. And so and all these hats don't really fit in a way because mm. you always um, like a yeah um, a hacker always kind of combines many different roles. And I have to admit that I didn't just go out and say, hey, hackers, where are you? Speak to me. But I was actually kind of recruiting specifically people who are interested in online valence and how they relate to it. So, so that's my, that was my entry point. And that's also then the type of response that you get. You still get quite a lot of different type of responses. It's, um, different kinds, different, um, <laughs> oh yeah, different. Di yeah. We will probably speak about access and how one accesses this field altogether, but, uh, and, uh, yeah, so, so there while studying this again, there is, uh, so many sliding scales and what I enjoyed actually the most is this uh, idea of, of messiness in research. We like to always put things into neat uh, narratives. We basically choose for the people that we have interviewed what we're gonna tell about them and so on. You know, it's a little bit, you know, it's a position of power that we take as, as researchers. And I really appreciated that when, <laughs> when I spoke to them, they were all kind of all over the place. So they, they were also, you know, negotiating with each other and they were kind of, um, putting each other into question. And, um, and that is something that I also wanted to trace in that whole culture, that it's not as straightforward a figure as we may assume. Indeed. And not only is it not a straightforward figure, but also hacking itself can be many things. So yeah. what are the many things it can be? Yeah, what can, uh, what are the many things it can be? I think I wanted to look at it in the context of, of, uh, again, of online uh, of online valence and of the politics that are involved into that. And, and when we now approach this idea of dispute, it's, you know, it's usually something that is an ongoing process is never quite finished, right? It's always kind of, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's something that's under negotiation. And I think that's exactly what I, if I had to put something on, on the type of hacking that hacking that I was looking into, uh, that's maybe where I would land that it's like, it, it's this ongoing development, 
right? Um, what are the many different things that can be in the context of um, of online valence? I guess we can talk about um, about many different things. Uh, you think about the practices now, or yeah? So so. Well, I mean, most of them already mentioned it's not really a hack, but many mentioned like if you want to, you know, if you're aware of what's going on, you minimize your data in the first place. You don't share certain things online. You just do it offline, full stop. So this is not really a hack again, but it is something that um, <clears throat> that uh, many of them agreed on at least. And then um, there's this idea of, of rerouting and encrypting data. Of course, many of us have by now understood that there is such thing as encryption, as encryption. but of course, as encryption can take many Many different forms, you know, the keys that you use to kind of lock and unlock the data, like who has access to these keys, who writes them. Many of them actually write them themselves. Um, they reroute, uh, yeah, for example, through through online, uh, through the kind of the Onion Network tour, where you kind of go kind of basically through different computers in order to kind of reach your endpoint. So it's really hard to, to trace where your message has been kind of cascading, how it cascaded through that network. Um, we have um, obfuscation. That's there's many different techniques. Others have also definitely written about that beforehand. It's like whether you choose to kind of drown in data, so send out tons of data at the same time as you sending a message. Problem with this is that you have an enormous data traffic that will also be visible. So not everybody was a fan of that. Um, at the same time, you, you also really clock the data, you know, like data is, uh, you know, and data infrastructure is uh, valuable. So mm. you, you clog a lot of infrastructure at the same time. So this wasn't always like um, the most uh, preferred version. Um, you also use like steganography, for example, you come up with your own codes. Um, yeah, these these types of uh, obfuscation. Then some of them have actually started, um, and that's maybe what we have in mind when we think of the classic hacker, uh, started to diversify hardware. You know, it's not just about writing code and and uh, and coming up with your own code and um, and using different kind of networks. Um, but it's actually also about the. Hardware. How do you do? You have a black box in the sense of, uh, <laughs> you know, something that uh, that's uh, that's a computer that's basically um, not associated with you, and use that for all the traffic that you don't, you know, you, that uh, uh, you don't want to be associated with. Do you have created a um, or are you using Raspberry Pis? It's these small kind of elements that can also. Um, help you making local networks, uh, which, you know, you can then share obviously with with buddies, but you can, you know, um, do everything only locally. And then there's, of course, the stuff that comes to mind when we think of of this kind of the big security questions, just such as barricading websites, defacing websites, uh, leaking information. You know, that's the big ones that definitely not all of them were on board with. Um, they were rather, many were rather critical. Some of them said like, well, I mean, it's a question of what you're, you know, what you're defacing here. Um, you can many things are are fine to do while you're, you know, uh, you know, it's yeah. Do the means fit the purpose type of question? Yeah. So some of them were ready to go this far. Um, I really loved um, a female hacker's uh, approach that I um, <clears throat> talk like um, that she explained to me as in like reverse engineering. So you have that honeypot that's, uh, that's kind of a, a trap for people, for spyware, for, you know, for things, 
that will attack that honeypot. And then you can look at the source code and pick it apart and exploit that, but also kind of make sure you can answer it. So, so she was really interested in the kind of crafty part in, into the kind of riddle solving, if you so want to. Um, so, so all of these were different ways of, um, of questioning um, the way in which information is treated online. And again, I'm not saying that all of this is a counterculture because I think this kind of this notion of the hacker as the counterculture is really worn out. I think it's rather a culture that 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 asks questions and um, many of them have also said, well, for us, it's really important to share knowledge and to tell other people how to do it and to um, express that we have ownership of this infrastructure, right? So many hackers actually say, well, I mean, we have even no, no, no interest in going offline because this is infrastructure that we partly developed ourselves, you know, we just don't like what's become of it. So, so in that sense, there, there is this, uh, this strong idea of sharing knowledge, um, at least among some cultures and, uh, and uh, a classic one of those would be the Chaos Computer Club, for example. Yeah, right. And this is where you recruited your informants. Yeah, that's I made it easy for myself because I knew that they were actually speaking to the public every now and then. <laughs> so uh, and and I'm German. So uh, in the case, Computer Club is um, originated in Germany, but also spreads to other um, German speaking countries and probably also beyond that by now. And um, so so what I did is I simply reached out uh, to their local um, mailing lists and uh, yeah, and, and spread the word and asked if asked if someone was willing to talk to me about this. And uh, and uh, the response was surprising. Um, but, um, you know, one thing is to get a response to what you've sent out. Another thing is accessing the actual culture, accessing that whole um, field properly. And with access, I mean, um, again, many, <laughs> many people when they write about their method section in their, their papers or also, yeah, especially students who are like, yeah, you know, this is how I reached out. I used a snowball sample and, uh, and I looked at these and these people made sure to recruit those and uh, this is it. And then I had my 15 interviews or something like that. So for me, access means, and yeah, it's, uh, I mean, especially the decolonial literature or yeah, uh, global South literature on, on what does access really mean? You know, that's extremely helpful here because it's all about having, um, not necessarily being a part of the field. I guess some, some would go as far as saying, this is, this is what you need, but obviously you need to inform yourself before you get into contact and, uh, and, and how to establish that trust. And I think, especially in the hacker community, this was really, I actually wrote two different type of texts about this afterwards um, because it was such an involved process. You know, usually as the researcher, you think you can come into a situation and say, here I am, I want to speak to you, listen to me, I have all the questions you may answer. And, uh, but the, what happens Actually, when I or what happened literally when I reached out, they were like, no, 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 you're not the one asking the questions here. We're asking you. And if you can't answer, we won't speak to you. So these would be questions about like, you know, political relevance uh, or the question of, you know, how how is surveillance taking <clears throat> taking place? 
uh, in, in different domains. Um, some of them were pretty techy, kind of. Some of them were very much like, okay, I want you to kind of download this and this now and install it while we're in a conversation. <laughs> Not that I was able really to do this. So, but I, I think that also showing a certain openness from your side and also saying, well, look, I mean, maybe I'm doing this the first time, but I'm, I'm also really here to because I'm interested in your, you know, in your thoughts. So not everyone would go on speaking to me, to be honest. Many of them were like, no, let's not. <laughs> but, um, and many of them wanted to also speak to, this is the moment when you understand, okay, I can't do this via Skype or, you know, Zoom wasn't, wasn't its baby shoes back in the days. But, uh, you know, then you suddenly like, they're like, no, 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 we want you to install this kind of uh, gamer software so we can speak through that because it's end to end encrypted. And of course, then university IT gets kind of sweaty, <laughs> sweaty hands, like, what are you doing? <laughs> so, so, so this, this is part of it. And what was um, fun, actually, at some point I had an excellent conversation that went on for hours <laughs> with one of the hackers. And I was like, you know, what is this? You know, you guys are, you know, tested me, all of you. They're like, well, you know, it's, we would call it a social captcha test. We just, you know, it's normal for the hacker community to test, are you worth investing into? Mm -hmm. And if so, you know, we're going, uh, you know, we're going a step further. If not, we just drop you. And I think, um, and in a way, this was probably yeah, it was, of, of course, a way of for them to, you know, to test me if at least if it was, you know, if I had enough understanding to, under, you know, to follow, follow their argument in a way. Mm. So, so I thought that was fun. And, and, and this now, now that I've been through it, it kind of sticks to me. And also as a, as a metaphor, as something I take with me into every, every empirical moment, like Marelle, keep you know, keep that, keep that access in mind and make sure it's a humble one and make sure it's a knowledgeable one, even if you create that knowledge over time. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, being tested by informants, I've done that so many times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, yeah what when you work with Outlaw Motorcycle Clubs, you yeah. also kind of are in a position where you kind of have to deserve trust in order to enter in I and gain access. So yeah. this is very similar. And this goes also for a for their own kind of prospective members and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. We have the secrecy inside. Uh, yeah. As, so, so testing is part of kind of uh, entering a field. So for anthropologists, I think this is very, kind of resonates very well with mm. any kind of ethnographic field work, I would guess. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, let us turn back to what you wrote. And uh, and I found this, uh, this uh, few quotes from your informants really interesting. Well, you write that for some interviewees, and I quote, hacks have literally become body automatisms, um, meaning that they are internalized. Uh, they have internalized which information they do not share online at all. So one of the hackers shares even offline information only with his web of trust. Uh, and in other cases, you have the kind of opposite where the identity work uh, that hackers perform is the opposite of automatism. And another hacker explains, for example, that masking one's identity requires uh, a lot of work of feeding a surveillance algorithm inconsistent data about yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, and what struck me was this kind of how this anonymity can become both a default, almost embodied, and on the other hand, it requires so much work and even disproportionate amounts of work. And, uh, and this made me think of, you know, um, this kind of uh, idea of privacy as a form of luxury. Uh, right, where, where only those who have kind of the time, resources, the knowledge, the kind of digital skills and so forth can actually afford to invest in it. Yeah. So you have either the position to kind of uh, 
disconnect and that that way become anonymous or or kind of invest uh, disproportionate resources and one of your informants reflects on this as follows and i quote him because or her um, how much technical protection do you allow yourself to have and when do you notice this illusion that you cannot protect yourself without investing an enormous effort even when you use story you would also have to change your behavioral patterns in order to stay anonymous in a forum you would have to change your writing style in your choice of words you would even have to obscure the kinds of contents you want to write about in order to be anonymous to disappear completely means to change your identity mm. and the question is also would you then become the other person <laughs> i mean in the eyes of the system you would be maybe yourself but somebody else at the same time <laughs> i don't know sure, yeah. so i was yeah. thinking you know uh, what are the reflections on this kind of labor that goes into into this i mean this is something they do but uh, it is not kind of a realistic uh, mode of relating to surveillance for the majority right yeah i mean here you you're you're capturing or you're, you're starting to talk about a topic that i personally still haggle with um well if you if you want to think so you know what this person uh, the last quote describes is basically anything that you do online can be captured in in a pattern right if it's uh, the the type of stuff that you write about how you write about it um, on which platforms are you and so on. So this is very, I think this is really symptomatic of our time that the, you know, the profiling is, is big and, and everything is captured in patterns. Um, but then that very much speaks to Kuczynski and all these other people who are very much like Facebook knows your partner better than you do, <laughs> you know, and like all these, all these big claims that even those who criticize, um, online valence have like you know th there is always like the subtle underlying claim that you know the those who steer the internet whoever they may be <laughs> they know everything and they can profile you to the tiniest detail they know before you that you're gay kind of right and that is um that i find also a highly problematic uh position because um i don't i don't think having you know having been in this field for a while I, f I find these ambiguities and disputes and and errors and failures i find them everywhere and these negotiations so i i really think um you know the overarching kind of field that this 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 uh, quote in a way kind of um thematizes is is a difficult one i haven't quite landed on whether the whether this online you know the pattern pattern thing in and in and of itself really works or not the question is rather which which politics does it perform right i'm no longer interested in it's you know is a certain form of online valence um uh working or not but it's rather like okay so it, it always works but the question is like in way <laughs> does, yeah. in which way does it does it work so in that sense i think it's um uh, it's an interesting quote by this person but this i mean and then you know obviously on on a lower level it simply describes there's only so much you can do um no matter how well the online surveillance system works um you might want to ask yourself how much are you willing to give up and how paranoid do you really want to be in the end and how does maybe life online also basically mean that you you know you 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 are aware of what's going on and you need to say yes to a few things that happen here if you want to be part of the system whether that's cool or not right and i think this is this is also speaking to the ambiguities that i was trying to 
to um, to show in these texts that it's it's never just a kind of you know we're having this under control type of narrative or um, we're failing, but it's it's always something in between. Yeah, no, but it's interesting because I think there might be also some form of kind of pleasure in this uh, hacking. We don't speak about it, but you know, there's a certain enjoyment in kind of uh, uh, evading an algorithm or fooling an algorithm. I mean, that must be like, this is the fun of it, right? Of course, it's gaming. <laughs> I mean, Biela Coleman in, uh, in Canada, she has written fantastic stuff about this whole gamer kind of gamer hacker field. And also, I mean, what I'm, uh, I'm a big, uh, or what I'm, what intrigues me is this idea of making, which also comes out of the, the, the feminist uh, hacker movement, which is this idea of, you know, not just negating something and hacking it and taking it apart, but also making something different. And this is kind of the spirit that also has been driving all of my projects in my postdoc, um, you know, that it's all about how do we how do we make things matter and how do we make them matter differently? You know, the police surveillance is making matter in some way, whereas kind of hacking and and we will speak about secrecy too and these things, you know, they make matter differently. They, uh, mm. they, you know, they do something else. So making, making is actually a really important part of, um, of all the cultures I have um, looked into. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, I also wondered about another thing, um, whether one kind of makes oneself paradoxically more visible through all these strategies of attempting to escape this kind of surveillance gaze and fooling it and so forth and trying to remain anonymous. I mean, you mentioned the Tor network. And after all, this network is heavily surveilled by law enforcement, intelligence services, military, and you name it. Uh, and just kind of being there and acting in it uh, or, or kind of elicits suspicion in many ways. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? What, what, what were the positions of the people you interviewed on this? Oh, yeah, there were quite you know that's exactly where they had negotiations amongst each other that's exactly where some of them said oh oh no uh the obfuscation you know as in drowning in data that's not useful because there will always be new algorithms that will find you um others have you know said well no but that's the only thing that really is efficient then you have those who who again you know they're very uh fond of tor uh because it is you know Probably also because this whole kind of sense of hacking plays into it as in, you know, this is an exciting way of, hmm. of you know, of, 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 in a way, sending, you know, ob obscure messages and so on, you know, so, so, um, so, but obviously there's also those who say, well, you know, it's exactly there the police sits. So why should I, why should I, you know, act there? I'd rather build my own networks or build some tunnel protocols or whatnot. So I think, um, I think in uh, yeah, so there's uh, there's definitely a debate amongst among those who I would consider more professional than me uh, to say well, not everything here makes sense. Not everything is um, is really a success success successful um, yeah form of of obscuring information. Yeah, right. And another one of these kind of conf um, Controversial things is this uh, more are these more aggressive techniques you already mentioned that this DDoS ethics um, and we became familiar with them uh, during this war in Ukraine. Now you know the Russian servers were being attacked by that. So I think this kind of technique became more familiar even to people who have not been aware of it previously. Mm. Uh, which kind of brings us to the question of hacktivism and uh, and uh, and the uses of these kind of more more aggressive forms of hacking uh, 
and you already mentioned that this was one of the points that they were kind of uh, discussing. Uh, maybe you could say a bit more about about these kind of positions on 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 this. Well, you know, hacktivism, I guess some would say, uh, is still boxing them. And it's not necessarily, I mean, hacktivism has also become associated with a lot less drastic uh, uh, hacks than, than uh, uh, distributed denial of service. Um, so I guess, um, I mean, obviously the, the hacktivist is the one that's imbued with the kind of political cause and uh, wants to make a change, but then there's so many changes to be made that it's not quite clear <laughs> which one is it that one wants to really support in the end. So it's... Um, I think again the 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 title hacktivism is not not everybody who I spoke to was easy with that even though they they spoke to me in the context of questioning online valence but they were still they weren't still ready to take that hat on again uh, precisely because mm. they because um, some of them would say, well, hacktivism is all about sharing your knowledge um, because you kind of then enable others to be able to to act as well. Um, others would say, no, hacktivism is the, you know, is, is the, that hardcore attack um, that really makes a big political difference, maybe in warfare, you know. Mm -hmm. So 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 this is really, um, I think, again, it's a it's, it's a spectrum and um, I'm not sure, really sure how how much that. Um, yeah this concept really gives us. Hmm. Right. So let us now abandon the hackers a bit, uh, or fully, <laughs> or maybe we return to them, and turn to children. Uh, and uh, your article, This is a Secret Learning from Children's Engagement with Surveillance and Secrecy, which was published in 2021 in Cultural Studies Critical Methodologies. And here I find it's really uh, fun to read that uh, you turn to the subject of surveillance and secrecy and their relation and the ways in which children handle surveillance practices and what we can learn from them. Uh, so what motivated you to explore this and how did you get to study kids? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, that is a big question. <laughs> no, because um, again, my my the spirit of my work was actually to study those who who want to make matter differently, you know, who put question marks on things. And then um, one of the obvious actors were hackers. And then I thought, well, I mean, there was Dana Boyd who wrote about steganography in teenagers who don't want to, you know, who don't want their parents to <laughs> know all their secrets on Facebook. So, um, so, and I was inspired by that and thought, well, actually, you know, surveillance starts so early, right? We have, um, you know, the pastoral surveillance exercised by parents and teachers. And uh, you have, uh, you know, you have also so much peer surveillance already at that super young age. Um, so, and I was like, well, I mean, if I at least think back to my own childhood, there were many ways in which we would <laughs> want to challenge our, at least, uh, you know, whoever, whoever it was, whether it was our peers or, or my parents or, you know, so at least that one would play with this all the time. So I thought like, maybe there is something to learn from them. And especially since kids um, don't really have that, you know, if they're seven years old and you, Kind of talk to them about surveillance they're not going to understand what you mean so i had to find a good conceptual language uh to approach them and then i came across the work of uh claire birchall um who writes about secrecy and um 
but she wrote about this in context of in other contexts. I mean, you can think about secret services and so on. And uh, but she has has written beautifully about about secrecy. And then I was like, yeah, secrecy is actually an excellent term to discuss with kids. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's how the idea was born that I thought, well, maybe we have something to learn from them. And maybe, you know, that's already when that negotiation um, and in part political process of of um, of, you know, let's say valence versus secrecy or really, you know, as I come to learn throughout the article, it's not versus it's more again, a mixture of mm. both. You know, that's maybe where we yeah, we find some answers. Mm. Yeah, so maybe first, I mean, I really like this kind of, uh, you know, what you describe as a move away a bit from this uh, focus on governance and, and mm. this kind of totalizing uh, logic of surveillance and um, uh, because yeah, I think this really gives us some kind of new uh, insights and um, and but maybe first we can speak a bit more about the ways in which children are being monitored. I mean, you have health monitoring, behavioral monitoring, but they are also kind of cast either as victims or even as a potential threat, as a kind of harasser or the bully, oh, yeah. right? So you have yeah. and all this kind of legitimizes new forms of surveillance, right, mm -hmm. uh, and control and and so forth. So maybe you could say something about. What is the kind of uh, surveillance landscape around the child <laughs> oh. and what the current research kind of says and what it misses, maybe? Yeah, um, I mean, first and foremost, I find that the kind of uh, maybe I'm doing some people injustice here, but I find <laughs> that actually the, the surveillance landscape around children is is often focusing on the parental teacher type of thing. Um, there's a bit on um, technologies that are already used at birth, you know, I mean, pre-birth, you know, you start surveilling uh, what's happening in the body, you you know, but that is kind of, I guess, medical surveillance. Um, but this can be, you know, appropriated now. There's an industry that kind of nurtures uh, and, and feeds on parental fears. So you can get all these blankets that test your, your kid's heartbeat. I mean, some people need that actually to surveil their children. I know that. But others, you know, there's again a, an industry that targets the fear of do I know whether my child is all right or not? Hmm. Um, nanny cams, you know, you, you name it. So, so there's this kind of commercial surveillance of of children. Um, you, but it's everywhere. I mean, you have, uh, and it's it's needed uh, again. This this notion of pastoral surveillance it's very important. You have you need someone to look after you. You know, it's surveillance as care. It's not just surveillance as as you know as power. So um, and I think um, you know there's there's um, different moralities that can be tied uh to these forms of surveillance so and that's maybe why the i don't know sometimes i ask myself if the word surveillance was really kind of so loaded already that it may not always be fitting uh this relationship that children have amongst each other you know peer surveillance amazing mm. you know how they how they look each and, and this is not just about like mm, which toys do you have and so on but it's more about um you have done this now, but I really wanted to, um, I don't know, access that playground. And uh, and I wanted to play with my own friends. So I better, you know, I surveil you now that you're not entering this game and so on. So there's a lot of watching that goes also on from very young age. So, so yeah, that's at least what um, uh, came out also in the interviews with kids. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, so you also argue that children deploy secrecy as a tactic or a method to interact with uh, this, these different forms of uh, looking, <laughs> watching, uh, surveillance and so forth. 
and um, and that they kind of uh, understand better the language of secrecy rather than the language of privacy, which is more this kind of uh, mm. legal uh, adult language. <laughs> and uh, you also say that the, this kind of tells us something fundamental about the relevance of secret uh, of, and secrets in society and shows us that the secret is performative and that it constitutes much more than a simple escape from surveillance. Before we talk uh, more about the kids and, and how they handle and engage in secrecy, maybe you could speak a bit more generally about uh, about secret in a society. What is uh, what kind of function does it have? What, uh... mm. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, again, it's uh, it's again something that requires that we first know about the dichotomies that are out there in order to question them, right? So so these ideas of of, uh, of a negative versus a positive morality, you find that in surveillance, but you also find this in secrecy, right? So the secret as that's, um, you know, wh why are you keeping something secret for me? You know, what does that do to me? What does that do to my social relationships? Um, you know, there, there the secret obviously has a bit of a negative morality. Um, but but um yeah secrecy is also about um obviously about building relationships again right and um <clears throat> what uh you know also a, a, another discussion between uh, or what what secrecy could mean is also that's not just containment um but um i think it's Derrida who breaks it uh brings it into the discussion it's also about secretion you know, it, it moves, it keeps a move, it, it stays a moving target, it changes all the time. Um, and uh, I think he says eventually, like it's an experience that does not make itself available to information. And that's where the secret almost becomes unspeakable. It becomes something that is just, uh, it's just a situation or it's just a, an, an expression. It's just a moment of feeling. Um, I have, uh, uh, yeah, I have actually also seen that in, in the way in which kids experience secrecy too um we can talk about this in a moment but there's there yeah there's uh, the the affective and aesthetic moment of of secrecy that um are maybe hard to uh describe and are maybe not always relating to you know containing concealing or hiding information but also to you know um experience information in a way yeah yeah i think it's also kind of the condition of the social actually right of relationality and uh, and enjoyment i think it's it's a bit like with the hackers right there's also great secrecy involved and uh, yeah. that's where the pleasure resides in that and i think the social is 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 in that so if you try to have a kind of society without secrecy it might not be a very enjoyable society oh no actually it's um oh man now i have to kind of go back to my uh have go to go back to my notes but it's actually simil who already wrote about the sociology of secrecy in mm. secret societies and says that without the secrets uh you know this isn't society right so mm. 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 Yeah, so uh, maybe you could tell us something about how you recruited the children, and I, I had great fun reading uh, reading about <laughs> your interviews with them, and uh, and you know the first reaction like, oh, can we have a secret? <laughs> Since yeah. you're asking about secrets, yeah, yeah. no, <laughs> exactly. Um, but this is they totally did the they totally do the social capture test. Uh, these guys too, <laughs> because um, first and foremost, I mean, you're this complete stranger coming into their lives who suddenly wants to talk with them alone in a room and <laughs> makes them kind of consent that uh, you know they you know you won't will never share information la 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 i mean that's crazy you have to kind of approach them differently so i went 
into the different <clears throat> classes and I, it was very important for me to speak them in my mother tongue which is German and um, so I went to the German school in Oslo and asked can I do this and luckily they said yes so I was going through the different classes and explained why I was interested in secrets and tried to also make it sound a little bit exciting, of course. <laughs> and, and then uh, I had to, of course, get the, the parents consent, which is really this is so important. Uh, it, this consent isn't really, you know, this is um, yeah, it's a data protection issue, but you do run into interesting situations when you are speaking to children alone. I mean, luckily, I never learned anything that harm was done to them or something like that. But what, you know, there were borderline situations where it's like, oh man, eh, well, should I, you know, am I, is my duty now to keep, you know, keep that secret or um, confidential or, or do I need to tell someone, you know, luckily I wasn't really tested hard on this, but it, you know, I can imagine these situations mm. um, appearing. So, so this is, uh, you definitely needed that consent of the parents and then Again, the actual moment of access is when you sit down and you try to kind of make them ease them into a conversation. And obviously, secrecy is, is, is something that they wouldn't want to speak to a stranger about in the first place. So we had to talk about different situations uh, that uh, that appear in their daily lives. And then one could kind of ease one's way into these questions. And then at some point when when you crack the code, then they love speaking about all sorts of stuff. And but the, the difficulty with with children is also always that you can never know whether they're um, bullshitting you or not, you know, because they tell a lot of things. And uh, and but it, I landed on the point that I'm actually I don't need to know that I don't need to test that because even if they were telling me stories and narratives, imaginaries, you know, I still learn a lot from them in terms of how they think about secrecy and indeed there was this one kid one kid was very uh, uh critical and was like uh, <laughs> so uh so i was like yeah we're talking about secrecy and that but this machine that lies here on the table records everything we say and then i needed to give context so it was like eh, yeah there's such a thing called anonymization blah 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 you know <laughs> so so you know they they really understood a lot actually and um and another one was you know it was really sweet like also making you know suggesting okay now that we are kind of having this conversation is it that we too have a secret now it's like yeah we have a secret now you know this is this stays this remains between us if you wish so and so on so it's a uh, so so this was really um yeah this required again a completely different type of empathy from from speaking to hackers i think but i'm i really enjoy those moments yeah I really like this uh, idea of being fooled by the informants. I mean, in anthropology, this is kind of something that runs through. Mm -hmm. It's not only the children, but lots of adults and lots of, uh, <laughs> you know, informants also often try to kind of fool you and or, or try to kind of guess what you would like to hear. Of course. And so you have you have all these kind of. Uh, but yeah, it's precisely like that. Even if it is imaginary, it still tells you a great deal. So uh, yeah. so it doesn't matter if it is true yeah. <laughs> in that sense, right? And with kids, you can be lucky because they once they get going, they can be quite direct as well. Mm. So so maybe mm, I think grownups potentially have more like this shaming moment or mm. this social control moment of what is it that she wants to hear. Kids yeah. can be all the way. They can go if they want to. They can go all the way out. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I really like the, uh, these examples that you have of these secret detective clubs with and secret language and so forth. And uh, 
and you know how they organized uh, kind of uh, very uh, elaborately these these secret detective clubs maybe because they have <laughs> done that fight on the, <laughs> on the school grounds yeah <laughs> yeah no just say something about how they were thinking about kind of the the group and in group because i was thinking you know it, it was just just made it so obvious that the, that the that uh, those who belong and those who not do not belong right and and what kind of demands are put on those who are inside and they even wrote a contract or something like yeah. that at some point right yeah, 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 i was yeah. like uh, yeah this is and they had their own set of rules and and it just so reminded me of these outlaw bikers yeah no but but you know but it just tells you how important secret is for shaping social yeah. relations Absolutely. and the bonds and yeah. and identity yeah. and right yeah. and they also had their own symbols right and mm -hmm. and this kind of brought me to this uh, to this other question that i was actually struck by was to, you know when they talked about secret they also talked about things they created right uh, yeah. and uh, and they even kind of, without using the word intellectual property and its protection, they actually <laughs> were meaning that, you know, nobody should copy it. And, and it yeah. is my kind of intellectual property. And, yeah. and it really brought me to think like, you know, how basic this kind of idea of policing intellectual property and IPR theft is. Yeah. You know, in companies, you have all these kind of systems for, uh, for you know, uh, preventing inside a threat in the form of stealing IPR. And, mm. and you have surveillance of workers for that. And, mm. and, and you protect it, uh, right? through kind of infrastructure mm -hmm. and, uh, and and so forth and how basic it is you know as an yeah. as an idea as you find it like readily available among the children as you do yeah yeah <laughs> no it has uh, yeah well, there's so many facets here you know one of them is is definitely that the um that this that secrecy triggered some creative registers somehow you know mm -hmm. um uh and that whether this is about you know the game that you want to keep to yourself or with your friend that which is mm. why some children for example decided we're going to play this game only after school so that no one can access it or or copy it but also in part because they wanted to have that moment of friendship as a mm. as as a protection in a way um there is of course this whole <laughs> <laughs> These were this detective club dramas. They were really, they were also fantastic moments of creativity where they came up with mm -hmm. all sorts of, uh, all sorts of, uh, uh, yeah, as you, as you mentioned, contracts that were then broken again and, and burned. And I don't know, maybe not burned, but kind of uh, they, uh, they destroyed it and whatnot. So, and, and also this, you know, coming up with a sign that gives you a certain identity. So there's a lot of creativity um, in and around the secret. So I think this is really a, a productive moment of the secret that can be, that can be really great. But as you already, um, yeah, hinted at it's that there's a, a lot of social inclusion, exclusion kind of going on. And this is, but this is also, a, you know, this is also boundaries, you know, they're, they're changing all the time. Some, some children have also explained, okay, now at this point in time, I'm allowed to kind of change that boundary and include that person and so on. So you have, um, basically lots of different different ways in which children do use secrecy you have those who you know the classic one is i guess if you want to kind of see it in the context of surveillance and by the way surveillance again is always part of any secret there is no secret without surveillance so um so the the classic one is you know i i want to have control 
I I know whom I'm telling what and what is mine and what is yours. You know, I'm I'm guiding these social situations here. If I am succeeding with this, by the way, some kids may not succeed. Um, and then uh, another one is actually protection. Um, and that was quite beautiful to hear also from some children who would, you know, would not have actually with, wouldn't speak about secrecy exactly as this power tool, but also as something like, no, this is, this is for me. This is only for my thing. You know, whether it is a, it's a friendship is one thing, you know, but there's also, it's something about the, the social relation to yourself. Mm -hmm. In a way, yeah, many kids have mentioned that they have little things, items, tokens. They want to not, you know, and they don't want anyone else's access to them. They have self-surveillance and, and self, you know, self-affirmative uh, uh, secrecy when they kind of write their diaries or, or you know, um, so, so, so there's, there's that part of it too, the, the protection part and the, you know, the way in which, um, uh, you use secrecy also to confirm identities, and then there is this this aspect of 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 um, effect or aesthetic or of this kind of moment that we talked about earlier, where it's almost impossible for children to put words on the moment that they experience when they have that secret. It's mm. not just play and fun. Of course, there were, <laughs> there were tons of kids who would make intricate treasure maps to that would also kind of fool people into the wrong directions. I had great fun listening to them, but they were also really kind of very, um, I think, again, as grownups, we can learn a lot from that. You know, this moment of, there was this one child who said, you know, um, well, it was just beautiful having the secrets. And then he would say it again. It's wunderbar, wunderschön, just to sit uh, and, and have that moment of secrecy without anyone else being there, right? And this is the moment where you can't quite, it doesn't, it's, it's no longer r relating to the secretion or the kind of information that kind of leaks or information that's contained and so on. It's just about a moment in and of itself that can't be put into. It doesn't relate to information in a way. Right? Yeah, I was struck by this creativity. And also I remember, you know, myself when I was a kid, I learned this uh, rune alphabet, this futuric, mm -hmm. and I used it to write a diary in Czech. Wow, that's know? very <laughs> advanced. <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was fun. And, and you know, it was not that there was nothing in what I wrote in the content that was in that any was, way secret, no. but it was just a form. It was just a pure form. That's that a is, lot, yeah, a lot of children have yeah. that. They, yeah, they appreciate <laughs> the form. They appreciate the riddle in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and it really also kind of uh, reminded me that you know that there was this one girl I think it was who was uh, remarking that you know she had this secret diary or whatever, but the mother was not interested in it. Oh yeah, and that was a problem, right? So I, and I also remember that it was like you know you wanted to kind of that's that secret to be seen at the same time of right course. and to be like you should notice you have that notice, secret yeah. otherwise, the otherwise secret there's, no yeah. there's no point yeah, exactly <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it's an it's amazing how how much um how much lies actually in secrecy as an as an answer to valence and or as as something that negotiates valence or in as something that uh, again as i like to say makes information matter differently because again it's not what we've seen or heard here now with these examples it's not again this classic forms of valence of power uh, of governance uh, and so on it's so much more complex and um there's even and that's maybe the main achievement of the text is mm, even at a children's level, a, an, a possibility to make information matter differently. There's there's an option to say, um, 
surveillance doesn't need to be that that power tool thing. Uh, I can make information work differently, and also I can even maybe make inf like the types of surveillance that are integrated with with um, secrecy matter in different ways than we experience in society. Great. So um, talking about the uh, kids, uh, we can move to other people who have uh, <laughs> secrets and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and who try to crack uh, other people's secrets and that would be the police. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, so uh, this is the last text that we're just gonna go through briefly. And uh, it's your chapter on predictive policing, which is titled Who Connects the Dots? where you explore how algorithms in technology-supported predictive policing are actually being made. Uh, and, you know, we had uh, previously uh, on this show your colleagues, uh, Simon Egbert and Matthias Lies. So um, mm -hmm. we won't go too much into, and we discussed also predictive policing with others. So uh, we won't go too much into this kind of discussion on, on predictive policing and, uh, and profiling and, and automated uh, recommendations and so forth. Uh, but uh, anyways, maybe you could just uh, sum up uh, very briefly what predictive policing is. What are these kind of algorithms that you explore, just in case somebody Yeah, know. no, the idea is that um, we can assume that um, uh, criminal behavior um, follows rationality. That means uh, people choose, take rational choices about where they go next and what they do in a classic pattern that that's, you know, I'm bl blending a lot of different criminological theories here together. But the, I mean, in the end, that's what they that's what they say, because um, because they uh, well, maybe it's also a question of habit. Um, you go uh, also into uh, areas that you're um, you know, that are easily accessible for you, that hold an option for you to actually commit crime, you know, all these things play into the fact that um, that there's this idea that we can identify patterns in how people commit crime. And obviously this is nothing that will, um, uh, well, I mean, there is this idea that if we only have enough information, we can also uh, predict the highly unpredictable type of crime as in terrorism and those type of things. We work really hard on that these days. Um, but uh, I guess that the, the, the actual really and, and the, the model where it's, you know, where we really speak about predictive policing is on a very small scale. The algorithms are developed for a specific city to see what are the areas that need police presence, basically. And this can be, you know, this can be uh, based on known uh, known perpetrators, known patterns of uh, of crime, um, and then obviously the classic, uh, you know, how many people are there? Is there any form of street surveillance, um, social surveillance, and so on? And from these different characteristics, you choose where to place your police. Hmm. So this kind of hotspot uh, kind of the type of policing. So. What I really like is that you focus on how this kind of algorithm is actually being made. Mm. And you interview the different experts, police staff, programmers, and you kind of try to capture all of these people's uh, involvement in making that algorithm. Mm. They are different perceptions and so forth. So maybe you could say something about, um, about uh, how you, again, recruited and get, got access to, to this and, uh, and yeah. then we discuss more about 
the actual life. <laughs> that was back in the days where back it was really the... easy to get to speak to the police. I mean, I'm understanding now it gets harder and harder. It's amazing. You have to go through so many different instances. It's not in Norway. It's not just the body that looks into data protection, um, but it's also, um, you know, you have to now go through the police district. If you want to do more than just interviews, you have to go also through the politidirektorate and get all this, you know. So um, so there's a lot to, you know, at least administrative, uh, administrative uh, formal access that you need to um, deal with. Uh, and in Oslo, it's you very easily get a no because uh, they're overwhelmed with people who want to study the police. Mm. Even people from the police university college get a no. So it's it's amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, back in the days, it was just uh, it it, um, it was interesting that there was uh, openness, and that was maybe like uh, I don't remember quite the specifics, even though that was 2016. So of of how I exactly entered this field, it was a classic. Uh, I I knew someone and snowballed my way through the system, but um, <clears throat> what was um, fascinating is that I, <laughs> coming from a tradition of critical security studies, there's this thing. There used to be this thing. There is a lot of you know a lot of work has been done in this field, but there used to be this thing of where one goes in, one is critical, rips things apart, and then goes out again and goes like, haha, I've shown you, police <laughs> is evil. But um, but. You know, when you come from that position, you're pretty young and kind of somewhat inexperienced and you go to the police and they're like, yeah, yeah, no, we understand all of this is super ambiguous and strange stuff. So we, you know, we're also only dealing with this ourselves. Then it's suddenly like a, a wake up call. It's like, oh, they're actually not so, <laughs> you know, they're not the, you know, ever since I, I needed to learn, like those who I study, you know, they don't deserve criticism. They deserve that we together understand what's actually going on there, right? And how do we become with, it's what Donna Haraway says, you know, how do we become with each other? How is this possible? You know, it's a lot nicer uh, a tradition than um, going in and criticizing, right? So, um, so yeah, but this was also, again, learning by doing, understanding that the police actually has a lot of interest in, in wanting to learn, at least here in Norway, that was, that was Norwegian police. Um, with regards to the, the the programmers, I just shamelessly wrote emails to them and asked them, "Do you want to? You know, are you available for talks?" Um, they were. Uh, some of them were saying things that I would absolutely disagree with, and you know, you you had that luck of having those, you know, some of those quotes that were really like capturing exactly what you had, you know, like. Uh, what you had feared in a way. so um i don't know how much i was steering that conversation but it was um and i think it i think some of them were pretty self-conscious about the fact that you know here comes a researcher but i still need to stand my position here as those who fight for for you know for that technology so that became almost a little bit more loaded that mm. conversation these conversation with the programmers and the 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 software owners obviously because they're commercial actors Hmm. often commercial actors there's also those who develop um at universities because they're interested obviously in in, in pushing that <clears throat> technology uh whereas the police were a bit more open to to conversation about these things hmm. mm. interesting so you focus on the life of the algorithm uh, maybe you could kind of talk us through what goes into making it um yeah um so um i am um, again inspired by um science and technology studies um in the way in which things already 
begin very, very early when you look at technologies, and I would understand the algorithm as a technology, um, so that you um, you even start asking, so what are the preconceptions? Uh, what are the imaginaries that go into this thing? In the same way in which there's an imaginary for which type of data would reflect which type of, um, you know, which type of uh, social pattern and so on. There's a, there's a preconception about what the algorithm is supposed to target and how it does that at best and so on. So people never come unbiased. Well, there's no such thing as, as bias. You know, people always come into a, into a situation with ideas about what this thing is supposed to do and how it will do it best. So this is, it already starts before you even create that actual algorithm. And, um, and then you actually write that, um, uh, you write the uh, algorithm for a specific purpose and um, you can do this in different ways. Uh, some people have said, well, um, we're focusing on a, hardcore correlative approach that really just correlates everything with everything else, like enormous amounts of data set. We create, scrape all data that we can get, and then we just kind of correlate everything with everything and see what looks spurious and what looks promising, kind of. Others have said this is nonsense. Um, we have small, highly curated data sets that we kind of, that follow theoretical knowledge about crime. You know, again, they come with their imaginaries about what data sets would fit these theories best, but at least they kind of, you know, there's very different ways of approaching how you train that algorithm. And then of course you need to write the parameters um, that uh, an algorithm then follows in order to um, capture the patterns. So, so, but <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, uh, talking to one of the people who really push, um, push for the, the use of predictive policing. And I was asking, so yeah, so you come up with the different type of sociological parameters that the algorithm should identify and, and work with. Mm. Um, and I was like, yeah, so how do you, um, you know, you understand these and then they're translated into maths. Do you understand what the mathematicians do? No, no, but that's also really not, you know. And, and this is exactly one of those classic boundaries, professional boundaries where you find, <laughs> this is amazing that there's internally in the whole kind of project of writing that algorithm, there is an enormous mismatch in, in terms of, of profession of who understands what. Yeah, mm. we'll very rarely have professions um, that, or, or, or people who work on this that have a very ba like very deep understanding of both the maths and the, the social sciences mm. here. So it's, um, so I found that fascinating. Mm. And then uh, you train it, you train the algorithm on, on data sets. Um, and in order to kind of show it, you know, look, this is a pattern and this is a pattern and this is a pattern. So it goes through the different data where you understand the patterns um, and can tell it this is right, this is wrong, this is right, right? and um, and then it is beta tested and then basically it graduates and then it goes um, into um, the field, basically, where you no longer know the pattern. You know, mm. then the whole point is to understand which type of new pattern does it come up with and what does it show me? Does this look good? And many police officers have said, for example, well, we need to have this mutual surveillance here where I kind of I, I understand is this output meaningful and you know, can I feed that back into the algorithm and so on? So it's it's really a, like I like to call it a living thing in the sense that it continuously develops, and uh, hence I, I use um, that idea of the of the kind of of the life cycle to kind of show exactly this this way of in which both data but also algorithms go through that life cycle of 
being thought about, being made, generated, uh, trained, uh, put into action. And then <clears throat> question is, of course, in the end, does an algorithm die? Um, mm. It was fun speaking to people. Yeah, it, to me, it was in the beginning a bit of an experimental one. So like, let's just throw it out there, hear what they have to say. Um, and actually, one one uh, mathematician was like, "Well, it's an interesting, you know, this is actually a giant field in mathematics because you can never know when an algorithm stops computing. You know, this is <laughs> this is it can't be predicted." And so, so I was very fascinated by that answer. At the same time, the whole point is also that um, I would guess that I mean, one could also speak of the social death of the algorithm; it's no longer relevant. But I, I'm, it's very rarely the case that this happens because parts of it, parameters or other bits and bobs, are going to be mm. reused in other systems, reused in new types of of programs. So, I think there is this kind of idea of 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 death and reuse that maybe <laughs> closes that circle mm. of life. Yeah, right. And, and, you know, knowing all of that about, you know, what kind of data goes in and how also you can put in the same data, but the results might be different depending on all these parameters and so on. And when you know kind of all that, uh, how do you uh, make sense of all these kind of calls for uh, algorithmic auditing? And, you know, we must make kind of bias free uh, algorithms in policing and we need transparency. I mean, when you say that the mathematician doesn't understand the, the other expert or whatever, right? I mean, who is to make sense and to whom this is supposed to be transparent? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so there is no such thing as bias. Everything is always a decision. There's only discrimination. And that's maybe where this whole fairness, accountability, transparency, now they add ethics to it. So it's no longer reads fat, but fate. <laughs> so, um, so, so this is where this whole movement, <laughs> so this is where this whole movement comes in, uh, as in like, we need to, we need to audit this algorithmic auditing. Who's even, who even can follow that entire um, life cycle of an algorithm, it doesn't, it's impossible. So I think the the best, the, the most realistic thing is that we have, we as researchers who do this stuff have conversations again with the police, with programmers, we go to the, we go to those conferences, we speak to each other. And, um, and I would say every single step here that I've just described, whether it's from the preconception or the moment you generate parameters and so on, all of that needs a specific form of, again, surveillance as care, you know, looking into what is actually going on here, whose imaginaries and preconceptions is actually driving uh, all of this. Um, you have now this, um, uh, the rise of the discussion around synthetic data, data that isn't kind of um, a causality, kind of that has no causality in society, but you kind of um, add it to um, existing data sets so that apparent discriminatory biases are um, becoming less intense in these data sets. I don't know. Um, I don't know if this is really something that works to me all this, you know, I, I don't know how it's synthetic in the sense because it's also it's always all re real data. And I mean, it's also real interaction with the data set again. So um, yeah, but so there's fascinating stuff going on. So I think the, the the most important thing is that people who work with this become aware of every single step, and of the yeah, it's now it's the 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 word is becoming empty and empty, but of the politics of every single step, mm -hmm. uh, what is happening there and how could this have an influence? And I think here, I'm 
calling out to the <laughs> to all those people who always ask, oh, we want uh, the societal impact assessments and whatnot. This is so tiresome because some, you know, those societal impact assessments are at the moment really just ethical fig leaves that are, you know, saying, yes, yes, you know, look, here's a few a aspects, think about those, but then go ahead. I actually think uh, if we want proper assessments, we need a much bigger culture for this. And as much as was can also be critical about those faith movements, I think it's it's a beginning. And at least we get to have a conversation about it. And the big companies need to relate to it somehow. Hmm. Whether there's a fake relation or not, we'll we get to see. Yeah. But it's also a huge market, you know. Yeah. So uh, yeah, which it means it's going also to be commercialized. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's also commercialized. It's just the same uh, same actors in a different exactly. Setup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, one other thing that I was really kind of fascinating by as an anthropologist, especially, was this idea of cleaning the data and preparing it and mm -hmm. kind of like you know, cooking it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and you have this, you know, this idea that you know there's some dirt and and and. I always kind of, you know, miss in, in these kind of descriptions of of this uh, cleaning and purification process. Okay, but what is it that they eliminate? What is considered dirt? Yeah. So maybe you can enlighten me on the dirt part. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want to really just illustrate it, it's this idea that, um, again, the, the, the more precise um, the data sets are supposed to be, as in they follow a very specific theoretical assumption, you know, then we need to understand which data can actually capture that. And everything else around this is considered noise, so you throw it out. So it's, it goes a bit back again to that big distinction between is it this huge data set where everything is simply kind of collated with each other and we see what happens? Or um, do we have pre like strong pre-assumptions that we want uh, to um, want to work with in these data sets. And that's um, the moment where, um, yeah, where where data cleaning comes in. Many people, there's, there's many different aspects of this, you know, like um, the overarching term may also be data labor, you know, how is data even worked with and created and so on. Um, uh, yeah, but then, then cleaning, scrubbing, you know, it's getting even more intense. We're scrubbing the data to make it shiny and polish it yes. and, and see how it really fits our purpose, kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's that idea, but you can only imagine, like imagine, yeah, you, you can only <laughs> see how big the imaginaries are that will kind of, will guide that cleaning or, or scrubbing process. Yeah, but it's mm. uh, it's an uh, interesting metaphor that uh, yeah, you know, creates also this illusion of uh, you know then it's kind of objective and neutral and you know it creates yeah. this kind of uh, yeah, it fits the purpose. Narrative, uh, yeah. People have yeah. engaged with it exactly. Mm. Mm. I also wondered about another thing. Um, you you mentioned it in the context of translating the analog to the digital where one of your informants points out uh, that this kind of social context gets lost. And uh, mm -hmm. to kind of remedy that, uh, they would kind of ask uh, the officers to write uh, short stories. Yeah. And uh, he, he, he or she says, uh, well, they had to present it in a written text. What is the story here? What is the suspicion? Why do you think this is suspicious? I was wondering whether you have given thought to this kind of notion of suspicion as a form of expertise, because this is what it really, it's this kind of hunch, right? And, and, and suspicion that 
that actually kind of uh, becomes the trigger for, for an investigation, for an action and so forth. It's nothing confirmed. Mm. But then this kind of uh, suspicion as expertise becomes, you know, transformed into this data mm. where it kind of gets a kind of uh, semblance of objectivity and so forth. And the same goes also for another notion that is the notion of risk. Mm. which also kind of, you know, is just a discretionary judgment, really. What totally. do you think? Uh, where do you put it on this table? But then you have this table with like red and, and some numbers oh, yeah. and right. and then it immediately appears as an objective risk, right? Yeah. So, 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 but it all is kind of uh, underpinned by this, you know, uh, suspicion, hunch, insecurity, uncertainty mm -hmm. that is then transformed into, into this kind of illusion of certainty. Yeah. Yeah, have you thought more about this kind of uh, this type of like expertise that goes into this form of knowledge production? Yeah, actually, I'm I'm uh, <laughs> I'm at the moment working on a different project where suspicion is actually uh, super central. Um, first and foremost, I want to say that this um, what the police officer there basically says is is an, a completely honest statement, right? I think it's fantastic that he basically says, you know. We need to understand what your what your view on suspicion is here, so we can mm -hmm. actually deal with this data uh, in a in a proper way. So I thought this was, and also this way in which they this wasn't data that was um, primarily uh, produced for writing an algorithm. It was rather a bigger system in which they would annotate data. But I think just this whole idea of data annotation, at least, is a is a fantastic way of giving context to information, right? So mm -hmm. I was very. Uh, very fascinated by that and I, I'm not sure I heard that so often in my other uh, interviews or I am sure that I have not <laughs> but it's uh, um, I haven't heard that a, a lot about it so annotating data uh, in the sense of giving context to it is uh, I think a, a great way of creating transparency for the way, uh, by the way hmm. no and the, the the objectification of um, of suspicion is is really central in uh, uh, in our current project on DNA. Yeah, tell us more about it. It yeah, sounds exciting. Yeah. No, it's um, so I think what we have uh, now that we have looked a lot into policing technologies that really look into, um, yeah, census data in a way um, or into, um, yeah, like classic valence data. I think uh, the next step would be to look into how biology and and technology and data kind of meet each other in new ways and um i think not too many people are aware of the fact that the dna has actually risen as a uh, yeah as a new biometric in a way you know i think it has been a biometric for many years but now it, it starts to gain foothold as something that really is being used in different types of cases and it's no longer about matching your DNA in a court case or something. And by the way, this is never just evidence is always kind of may become evidence at some point. But in mm. the beginning, there's this matching procedure where you want to see is this, uh, you know, is this person's DNA matching someone in the data set and so on. Um, but by now, we actually start to infer from data a different type of uh, DNA data, a different type of um, characteristics. And that has to do with the way in which um, uh, bioinformatics and, and molecular um, biology have, um, you know, how genetics have advanced uh, over the past years. So, for example, this thing called phenotyping, where you want mm. to um, infer from uh, DNA what something or someone could look like. I mean, phenotyping generally relates to um, 
appearances. It doesn't need to be necessarily from DNA, but generally like in biology, this is called phenotyping where you want to understand what um, a, a species looks like. Um, and that is now being used on human DNA to see from which, you know, which coding region, um, you know, expresses itself as a certain physiognomy, uh, pigmentation, morphology. Um, so, so all of this is happening so that the dream is, of course, um, to say, well, I found this, um, this, this DNA um, at a um, crime site. By the way, it's never really as easy because there's tons of shatters. So there's, you know, the, the, the crime site is full of DNA. So you need to understand mm -hmm. who's is who is here, right? But the dream is, of course, you can single out that DNA. You have mm -hmm. that that DNA of someone who might be a potential perpetrator. And from that, you can infer what this person may look like. Another thing is that you can actually uh, go into databases um, and uh, compare that not in order to make that classic match of like, I have found my perpetrator, but more like, okay, certain traits, for example, between you and me may be very similar because, you know, we um, would have somewhere down the line, some common ancestors. So that means that one could kind of infer from different type of data, DNA data sets. Okay. So one can, one can trace the, the family histories, the relational, uh, you know, so so we we all contribute to that. You know, we contribute to it when we kind of send stuff to get match and, and family tree and and uh, ancestry. You know, all these different places that find out for us where our roots lie. You know, so it you know all of this coincides with a rise in both the technologies for doing um, doing the 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 analysis, but also in the rise of data that's available. Right. Mm. So so we have way more DNA data available than ever before, and it will rise. So the interesting thing is here, what's going to be that role of DNA, of course, first and foremost in law enforcement, and what will it be in other places in the future? That's a, that's a big field, we can't answer for that. But the, the interesting thing in law enforcement, and this is bringing us back to suspicion, is, of course, you create suspects, mm. you know, that's, that's the whole point. You create suspects through relationalities in G in the genome. You create suspects through the, you know, you create suspicious appearances, right? And the biggest problem of this is, is that you never, you know, it's a phenotype, it's a type, it's a, mm -hmm. you know, it's not, a, it's not an individual. So the whole point is that you predict on the basis of groups. And what that does, again, you can imagine the, you know, yeah. the, the implications of this is like, okay, our perpetrator looks like this group of people, you know, Bam. <laughs> and here you have created a suspicious group, right? So um, a lot of my wonderful colleagues in Amsterdam have written about, uh, you know, the way in which this, you know, the question of race obviously plays into this. Mm -hmm. And so, so there's, um, you know, on the one hand, you have that discourse that's very critical and needs to happen. And, and it's so important. Um, when you speak to the police, they also have a very strong discourse about the, the victim that needs closure. And, uh, you know, these are new options for providing care, providing closure. It's not that they want to go out and say, we want that suspect. You know, mm. actually, to many police officers so far, it's a highly administrative procedure, quite boring, quite mm. kind of, you know, not, nothing exciting uh, CSIE about it, <laughs> you know. So so I think um, I think it's very important to understand these different discourses and cultures around that. And I actually mm. find that this um, especially that integration of 
of biology of the genome of DNA mm. um, uh, with technology kind of creates totally new fields of, of biovalence of bioprivacy um, of of you know the genome is so sensitive data right we could mm. the genome in the wrong hands um, again it's a little bit like it brings us back to the beginning of the conversation as in what can the genome really say about mm. us, right? In the same way in which what can these big patterns online really say about yeah. who we are, right? So there's a lot of room for speculation, both in the online patterns, you know, but as well as in the, you know, how you interpret the genome. I'm actually writing mm. an article about these kind of room room for speculation mm. as we speak, mm. right? So, um, so there's a lot of it in there, but it's also really, really dangerous because no matter whether it is true or not it's intensely productive because yeah. if you once you have decided okay these and these and these genomes who that translate into these type of people it, you know you can see how this um in the in in the, you know in the wrong hands this becomes dramatic becomes dramatic mm. and i hear more and more situations where dna is literally used for surveilling uh, borders yeah. for, you know, all of that. And, you know, if you do this kind of uh, in, in relation to a border where there is a current genocide happening, I mean, you can, you can see the implications of how it important it is hmm. that we understand what is, what is this doing on a political level, but also in terms of when are we closing in on determinism? This is really, even if it determinism comes in a different gown, yeah. my uh, current, um, my own uh, excitement uh, at the moment lies in reading all these kind of biological, um, uh, yeah, biosocietal theories about mm. crime, where there's this idea that we can have, we can predict the kind of aggression genome or the, you know, whatnot. So, yeah. So you see that there's there's a lot yeah, of work to great, do. There's a great revival of all these theories, also in this kind of physiognomic AI and yeah. this kind of belief that you can, uh, I don't know, based on your face, you can kind of uh, trace uh, some suspicion and potentiality of future criminality and all that. But uh, yeah, it's kind of a strange return to all these yeah, yeah. Uh, very my, bogus my and is, discredited uh, theories. Uh, and it's pretty scary. I was also thinking of, you know, this whole industry is actually in the business of producing suspicion that is the that this suspicion drives these markets uh, as well. Mm. And uh, producing threats, security threats and suspicion mm. is, is an enormously growing uh, market. <laughs> mm. So so it fits into that uh, pattern as well. But uh, speaking about patterns, uh, but I also wanted to just mention the fun thing which I talked thought about while you were speaking about this uh, and it is you know the that it also generates new forms of kind of um paranoia right like like you have this kind of paranoia from being surveilled and it might be legitimate in some ways if you are <laughs> but uh, you know like putin is going around with his toilet and because he's so afraid that uh, that you know somebody would get hold of his dna yeah yeah so, right well vice versa i guess yeah yeah, uh, yeah, I think visits, also, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, so so you have you have all this kind of uh, dna uh, paranoia thing where you know you all oh, my bodily fluids are like uh, part of my Myself that is enormously valuable. Ah. Oh, shit, there's such a valuable information. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just actually yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it is always valuable information. You can find out about yeah, your yeah. sick and so on. No, but I think uh, I I guess um, this is it's interesting that you I should mean, call it, it. this boat's true and it's a bit funny at the same no, time. No, no, and, 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 and what's yeah, that's kind of why we're asking the third question in this um, in this uh, um, in our project as well. 
because we're looking, of course, at databases and algorithms and how, are, how is all of this integrated with, with DNA analyses. But uh, our final question, most people were a bit like, eh, why are you asking this question? But there is a bit of the sci-fi scenario of, well, we have genetic engineering. What does, what does that throw, what does synthetic biology throw into the mix when, you know, we trust DNA as something that can produce evidential information, mm -hmm. right? So, so I think this is kind of, this is indeed playing on this paranoia of like, how far can you push it and, and what is, uh, is there an option, uh, for, for, you know, change? a change of DNA and DNA is by the way changing all the time but in any case so 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 is there um is there a way of engineering DNA and so on again it's a sci-fi scenario but our question is more fundamental as in like how does the idea that we are able to to tinker with our own DNA mm. how how does that suddenly kind of change this whole value the scientific value of um of, of DNA. And another thing I wanted to add is like, there's of course this commercial, um, yeah, the, the, you know, suspicion as a commercial enterprise and so on. I, I would agree that there is an enormous amount out there um, that, you know, you can, you can call it that, but again, in the same ways in which um, one has to learn everyone's standpoints in each discourse, I also understand the those who are really excited about these um, about these possibilities. You know, there's the the classics. You know, kind of you know the, the scientific ideal of yeah, look what we can do. It's amazing, and it is amazing. You know, this is actually pretty crazy where we are right now. So I wanna, I really wanna, you know, I wanna um, keep my political distance kind of to to these things. But at the same time, as I also want to understand, there is. Um, there is understandable narratives in in most fields here, and let's understand how 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 we can collaborate and how we function together. Because some ways we really don't want some roads we really don't want to go down, right? So, but um, I was just at a forensic conference, for example, and what I found fascinating there, but also in in the articles that you when you start reading forensic articles, you see that they really have a pretty well developed culture of failure like a, a tradition mm -hmm. of, of acknowledging failure. And this is something that often critical scientists go out, like social scientists go out and say like, how do you relate to error and look everything when everything breaks down, this is when you understand what you've done and what you've created and so on. So, but I actually think, you know, it was fascinating to see that none of them claims we have the answer. None of them says we're going out there giving you um, you know, it's not as self-confident as, as some of the commercial actors would say, mm -hmm. we're giving you that answer. No, there is a very, um, uh, very well-established, you know, classic scientific trial and error kind of um, culture in forensics. So I, I don't think we can go around blaming them for saying, <laughs> look, what have you done? What may be stronger, um, what, what could be stronger maybe in that whole... Um, uh, in that whole culture is to ask like, okay, can you, even if you're really excited about these results right here and the, what we can do, um, and you're aware of the failure and, and the difficulties and the insecurities that this brings with itself, can you maybe also think of the societal implications of mm -hmm. you offering us these technologies now, right? This is, this is, I think, where we can really have that conversation. But I think a, a self-awareness of the uncertainties of these technologies mm. is actually, at least in the forensic communities, is quite present. Yeah. No, I, I believe that. That's 
on this note uh, and uh, <laughs> I think uh, we say thank you to Mariel Kaufman. It was absolutely uh, exciting uh, talk and conversation and uh, I hope we have more of them. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> this was wonderful. So until next time. Yes. Bye.